electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here is what's ahead. The S&P is on track for its best July in a decade. Everything from fast food to health care to the housing plays are hitting new highs today. Is Texas historic run about to give way to America's comeback kids? We'll debate. Speaking of historic runs, Tesla spent on an epic stock bender this year, up almost 300 percent. We're going to look at whether the stock can keep climbing after its key earnings report tomorrow with profit expectations running high. All that plus the stimulus sneaker trade, a trip down the produce aisle and Wall Street potentially walking away from New York City. It's all in rapid fire. But we begin with the markets and Bob Bassani with the rundown for us. Bob? Another strong day. Markets just keep powering forward and it's the rotation that's really making the market relatively healthy here. Take a look at now what the markets are doing right now. Uh, S&P again, that breakout above that that old high that we hit uh, uh, a couple of months ago on June 8th, uh, and that's still maintained there uh, for once. Chevron and Exxon are really helping the Dow. We're over $42 in oil. That's a big thing. We've got some positive oil commentary. Apple and Microsoft generally are hurting. I want to just show you the S&P 500 because it's very important that we've been breaking out in the last day and a half now uh, above that February 8th high. We're positive for the year. And again, largely this is on tech, but on certain days, like today, you get some outperformance from energy and industrials and materials. Mega caps, of course, they're the big power. They're down today. Amazon up yesterday, down all last week, down today. It's a bit of a seesaw as we try to figure out what's a fair price, but people are using it as a source of funds to buy other parts of the market. Earnings are out. We're in the middle of earnings season. Uh, no guidance from Coke or from IBM, but the, but the overall numbers were good enough to push the stocks forward today. Philip Morris actually had comments for the future above consensus, and so did Lockheed Martin. So not all the commentary is we don't have anything to say. Some of it's actually been very positive. That's helping stocks. What's moving the markets? The three things that matter right now. Number one, the belief that there's going to be a vaccine. Treatment's improving. Number two, Q2 is the economic bottom, and Q3 will be better even if there are reopening and reclosing problems. And finally, if the reopening mega story starts turning into reclosing, you're going to see a lot more stimulus. Guys, back to you. And Bob, that all makes sense for energy and retail outperforming today. Are there any more specific reasons why those sectors are popping? Well, we're seeing for, there was very positive comments for, uh, for a number of the big stocks like Devon today uh, from some of the analysts. But Oil's been stuck at $40 now for about a month and a half. As it popped above that at $42, that was sort of a trigger that things are not that bad. Remember, the European reopening story is going better than the U.S. reopening story. They've got a big stimulus package there. Taiwan moved into positive territory. Uh, Some of the other European countries did as well. And so did Germany today. Germany turned positive for the year as well. So the story is a little more positive in other parts of the world, maybe a little bit ahead of us in terms of the reopening story. Yeah, that's a good point. Bob, thank you. We'll check back in soon. Bob Bassani. 
Well, the big tech companies added nearly $300 billion in market cap yesterday alone. Amazon was up nearly 8%, Tesla almost 10%, Microsoft was up more than 4%. But today it's the stocks more geared towards the reopening, like retail and energy that are showing some strength. Kohl's is up 8% now, United Airlines up 3.5%. And look at Old Dominion up fractionally, but it's at an all-time high for Old Dominion freight lines. For more on these markets, let's bring in David Hardin. He's president and chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. And Samir Samana is senior global market strategist for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. It's great to have you both here. David, I'll ask you if you feel comfortable uh, continuing to allocate as much of the portfolio as I imagine you do to the big tech names. Well, I do at this time. I think tech is a good play. It's different than the tech bubble in the sense that in the tech bubble, there was a lot of um, low quality and I will say very risky companies. Today, you have the tech leaded being led by quality companies, Amazon and Apple, like you mentioned, and Microsoft, all of which we own. And I think these are very good companies. You know, during this uh, 40 million some odd unemployment, they're still using their tech phones. They're still using technology. They're still using the Internet. So I think these are very much in play. They can work remote and it is different than the tech bubble. Now, there is a separation of tech and there's definitely some tech out there that I wouldn't own. So I'm curious, though, I mean, we talk a lot about the sort of the tech bubble analogy. What about the nifty 50? You know, that was a period of time when you had a lot of big cap, high flying, outperforming names. Everything else was kind of a mess for a while. Um, And we never saw, again, the valuations for some of those household names that we did for that stretch. Is that uh, potentially the kind of situation we'll face with these big tech names? We could be if they don't execute correctly, if they don't innovate. I think that they could run into some of the similar same problems that that had in the past. But one of the things you find with Microsoft, with Amazon and with Apple, just the, the you know big three tech there is that they're also some of the most innovative companies out there. So from an innovation standpoint, they're also uh, and they're very diversified within their tech. So I think they have a lot to offer. I love the rotation that's happening right now. I love the value that's being played. I'd like to have value with growth, not just growth. All right. Let me turn to you, Samir, and talk a little bit about retail and energy. You know, Bob did mention we had the EU stimulus package. I mean, there's a number of kind of macro developments that I guess seem supportive for these reopening stocks. Do you think that this could have legs? You know, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, how the, the cases uh, are on COVID track, right? So if there is, let's say, you know, a vaccine and it can be distributed globally, you know, let's say sometime, you know, end of 2020, early 2021, again, you know, that's on our base case, probably, you know, the odds on that are, are pretty low. Um, then these companies will continue to kind of wax and wane with uh, the headlines uh, around the development of those immunotherapies, the vaccines, and, and those cases. Um, you know, we think, like David, that, you know, at least right now, if you want to kind of ride through um, those ups and downs, you try and look for those areas that can kind of grow through um, this very sluggish environment. And those probably are tech, communications, consumer discretionary, which is geared towards e-commerce, um, and healthcare. And then, you know, kind of a, a value play that we've had for a while would be, you know, financials. You want to continue to, to at least look um, there for, you know, the, the yields that they've been offering. So at least right now, that would be kind of our playbook. So it's not concentrated sure. in tech, um, but tech's definitely a cornerstone. No, and it's a good reminder of, you know, to look at the yields as well, like you said, even for something like the financials. David, let me turn back to you. You said you like value stocks, but not value sectors. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I think that, you know, if you look at like for energy, for example, is a sector that has been extremely down. It has a lot of value from a value factor exposure perspective. But it's also something that's been stuck at 40, like uh, Bob talked about earlier for a long time. It's only three or some odd percent of the S&P 500. Amazon is actually a bigger weight in the S&P than the whole energy sector. So it's easy to kind of sidestep that and find other value somewhere else. And give me a couple of examples. Uh, And even before we move on from the big tech issue, it's important to note that while we often talk about these companies day by day is rising and falling together, if you look at the performance this year, Amazon's up almost 70 percent, but Facebook and Alphabet are only up 17, 18 percent. I mean, they've definitely been lagging because of their uh, declines in advertising spend. So I don't know if at some point those qualify as catch up candidates. There's a little bit there, but I would rather look at something that's a, uh, that has tech that's been growing in their tech space. When I say specifically, it's online spending like Walmart. Walmart has a low PE of about 0.5. Um, so you got a limited amount of downside. It picks up market space in this type of market. And if we're going to have a rotation into more value, it's still a great name to have. It's got a PE of 26. The average PE in that space is 27. So I think that Walmart gains market share is a great thing. And they just announced that they would invest another 400 some odd million dollars in their employees, the largest employer in the U.S. That's good news for Walmart. All right. Good news for everybody, frankly. Thank you, guys. David Harden, Samir Samana, a pleasure speaking with you today. Appreciate it. Let's dig into some Tesla now, shall we? Shares are tapping the brakes after their major run, not just Monday, this month, this year. The stock is up nearly 300 percent. And it's one reason that JMP Securities is downgrading Tesla to market perform ahead of earnings tomorrow. More, let's welcome in the analyst behind that call, Joe Osha of JMP Securities. Joe, it's good to see you again. You just can't stomach the stock price here. I I really can't. Look, I think the company is doing tremendously well from a competitive standpoint, and I I think the numbers are going to be good. But at some point, you've got to be able to justify the valuation. And even on the scenario we had, which is that this becomes a $100 billion company, I I can't get there anymore. So where do you stop uh, on the stock price? I mean, you know, there's been plenty of people who would have thought $1,000 seemed like a stretch, and that was, you know, several hundred dollars ago. Yes, indeed. And and obviously, when you've got a name that is growing like this, I, I do think you have to take a step back from, you know, hey, what's what's next year's multiple and, and try and think holistically. And, and so we did say when we went to fifteen hundred dollars, hey, you know, this company can be selling two and a half million units in 2025. It can get a whole lot bigger. Right. But, you know, if you get to the point where even on that kind of you know, tremendously successful outcome, you, you still can't make the stock make sense then it's, it's time to say so. I, I don't think that you know, bad things are going to happen. Frankly, I'm amazed that the competition hasn't done a better job. But, but everything has a price. And, and that's, that's what we said this morning. Well, and this is also the second time in two days we've had this conversation. So more folks on the street yeah. are starting to kind of turn more bearish now that it's run up so much. And now that we have uh, tomorrow's earnings report where it's expected to potentially turn a profit, a gap profit, I believe, right? And that starts the conversation about it going into the S&P 500. But again, a lot of this has been priced in, hasn't it? Yeah, look, um, I, I think the profitability is going to be touch and go. We, we've got them at a little bit of a loss, but but that's that's hard to call. And, you know, they, they could. But I would submit that at a $300 billion market cap, you know, probably people have, have figured that out already. 
Yeah, and now that uh, Elon Musk, I think, is the fifth wealthiest person in the world because of his exposure uh, to the stock price run-up. Is there anything, Joe, that Tesla can do to take advantage of this high stock price? I mean, secondaries are kind of the obvious thing that comes to mind, but it, you know, should they be using this uh, more to their advantage, even if everybody thinks the price makes no sense? Should they be capitalizing on it? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a big believer in you know, taking advantage of, of a high stock price and, and building a fortress balance sheet. This company um, is yielding a lot of free cash and, and you know, a lot of the concerns they, they had about you know, liquidity have gone away. But honestly, if I were them, I'd say, hey, why not uh, take advantage of this to, to put you know, even more money on the balance sheet? You know, they are going to need to build um, a number of factories over the next four or five years if, if they want to they become a three million unit company. And that costs money. So if, you know, if I were Elon, I'd be figuring out a way to put even more money on the balance sheet, even though the balance sheet's quite solid as it is. So final question, what are kind of the whisper expectations going into the quarter tomorrow? I mean, if, if you and I and, and folks this week are already talking about gap uh, profitability, I mean, what else, where is the bar really, do you think? Um, gosh, that's an interesting question. I, I think, remember that they've given us units for the quarter already. So I wouldn't expect any major surprises. I think the big question for tomorrow is going to be, uh, are they willing to put a marker out there for the rest of the year? And what, what is that going to look like? And, you know, gosh, if they say, hey, uh, yeah, we can ship more than half a million units, the stock, the stock will probably rally. Um, but I, I think it is going to be more about that outlook than it is necessarily about the, the outcome, because we, you know, we, we know what the units were for the quarter already. Right. Absolutely. Going to see what they'll tell you about the rest of the year. Joe, thanks yeah. very much. Joe Osha from JMP Securities downgrading Tesla after that huge run up. Coming up, college lawsuits are picking up steam. Do parents and students have a case demanding refunds on tuition and fees? We look at the latest battle in education with many campuses staying closed this fall. Plus, with COVID cases and retail bankruptcies spiking, we check back with a mall operator with locations in hot spot states to see how that's affecting operations on the ground. And the Fed needs to go much, much bigger. And pulling back now would be a huge mistake. Jeffries, David Zervos, joins me to make that case a little later on. The exchange is back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We are closing in on 4 million confirmed COVID cases here in the U.S. With hospitalizations on the rise in several states. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. While our average on new cases that we're adding each day in the U.S. is around 66,000, although we did add uh, fewer than that yesterday in the United States, Evercore ISI pointing out that growth in new cases is slowing. Now we're just growing by 10 percent week over week in terms of cases versus 20 percent 
in the previous week. You can see hospitalizations have also been rising. In some of the states that are adding the most new cases and hospitalizations, though, we are seeing signs of potential nearing or passing of a peak in terms of the new cases. However, in other states like Montana, North Dakota, and Idaho, even though the numbers are smaller, you can see that their hospitalizations are peaking, showing that their uh, infections in those areas are really starting to take off. Uh, meanwhile, Kelly, some interesting data just coming out today from the CDC, uh, looking at antibody levels in 10 areas across the U.S. This is from blood uh, essentially taken as part of routine uh, visits, just tested for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. They found that in New York City between April 25th and May 6th, 23 percent of people had antibodies uh, for this virus, versus in Utah, only about 1 percent, 5 percent in Connecticut, and about 3 percent in Florida. And in places like New York, that's 10 times more than the cases that have actually been detected. Uh, so a lot more people infected than we knew about, but still nowhere close to herd immunity yet, Kelly. That's fascinating, though. I wonder if it's playing out in part. You, it makes you wonder if New York City would be the safest place uh, for COVID right now, if that level of the population already has those antibodies. It's also interesting to me, Megan, I, I'm curious because you follow it so much more closely. It seems like no state or region that had a bad outbreak has had another one. In other words, you know, COVID was in the Northeast and then it went to the West and then it went to the South. But I kept waiting for New Jersey's numbers to start climbing again, and it's not happening. I mean, it, I, what does that tell us, do you think? It's hard to know. Perhaps uh, it's experience and the harder hit areas just saw how scary this was and uh, we've uh, acted accordingly in terms of being careful. Um, there could be other epidemiological aspects at play. Um, but you're right, we are seeing regions of the country experience this at different times. So far, no second waves yet that we, we know about um, being repeated in the same regions. But we'll have to see how that goes, of course, as we approach the fall. Yeah, absolutely, because it seems like everyone's still bracing for that to happen. Meg, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest for us. Thanks. And with less than a month to go until most schools begin classes, dozens of colleges and universities are facing lawsuits. Parents and students are demanding partial refunds on tuition and other campus fees, saying online classes are poor substitutes for classroom learning. For more, I'm joined by Danny Savalos. He's co-founder of the law firm Savalos & Wong, and he's a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Danny, it's great to have you. And do you think these parents have a, have a case? Well, these cases are going to force us as a society to figure out what exactly are we paying for when we pay these thousands of dollars every year for tuition? Are we paying for the information? If that's the case, then delivery through online shouldn't make that much more of a difference uh, than being in person. But if you're paying for some intangible experience and just being on campus with other smart professors and students, then you could argue that the online format is a poor substitute. What makes it even more complicated is the fact that we already have online programs and online universities. And for those universities that are already offering online and offering on-campus classes, how in the world do we value this now forced online program? And is it worth the same thing that colleges have been charging students in the past, frankly, for time immemorial since universities began. 
Right. It's interesting to look at the list of schools facing lawsuits. It's everybody from Drexel to Berkeley, Vanderbilt, Purdue, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Michigan State, UC Boulder. As some of the schools who have agreed to refund unused room and board include Harvard, Columbia, Middlebury, and Swarthmore, all of which have relatively well financial position, relatively strong financial positions. So what happens to these other colleges if they have to go ahead and be forced to refund these fees and costs? Full disclosure, I'm actually an adjunct professor at Drexel. I've taught online and live, which has forced me to think a lot about you know, the value of uh, online versus live. But you're absolutely right. I mean, for schools like Harvard, who have massive endowments, I mean, their endowment is bigger than uh, most countries uh, in the world. They have a lot of money. And that's the argument. Maybe a school like Harvard or a well-endowed school could have been uh, uh, subsidizing some of these tuitions and other losses. Now they're facing a lot of lawsuits for reimbursement for tuition. Class actions, which, when aggregated, can result in huge hits to these schools, whether they're private or state universities. Yeah. So I guess the question now for all the parents out there watching is, number one, do they kind of clamor to get some of their money back? And number two, do they try to negotiate for what's going to happen this fall? It all comes down to the contract, if there is even a contract with applicable terms between the student, the parents, and the university. And those contracts will spell out what they paid for and what the universities are allowed to do in case of what's called force majeure or some unforeseen circumstances, some impossibility of performing the contract. For those universities that put in tough clauses that benefit them, then they may be able to avoid these lawsuits. For others who have no language whatsoever, they've left themselves more exposed to these plaintiffs and they may end up paying more than universities who developed contracts with very favorable terms for themselves. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, we're all trying to figure this out. And that, that's just the college level. I see you're, you got a little girl in the background there. And, I, you know, they, they at least, I mean, what if you're less than nine years old, what do you think? It's, it's safe for the kids? I mean, that's the, that's the $1,000 trillion question. Here's the fascinating thing. We've been playing with online education for several years now. The pandemic has just forced us to do it very quickly. Is it really the wave of the future? Or on the other hand, is it a poor, flimsy substitute for in-person education? Maybe in 10, 15 years, we'll look back and say, oh my gosh, do you remember a time when we walked uphill both ways in the snow to go to an in-person class? How quaint, how silly now that we do everything online. Or maybe in-person education will be around forever. It's been around for hundreds, thousands of years since education began. Maybe it's a fundamental staple and maybe that intangible that we're paying for and uh, that I'll be paying for in in the not too distant future, (laughs) thousands and thousands of dollars. Maybe there is some value to sending my kid away to a dorm or a sorority to do God knows what uh, with uh, that tuition. I know, and I think the first part of what you said is right, that it might be 10 or 15 years before we even really know the answer. Everyone trying to figure it out in the meantime. Danny, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Danny Savalos. Coming up, the Fed made the right moves early on, but now is the time to go even bigger. That's what Jeffrey's David Zervos would like to see. He joins us live ahead. Plus, with Wall Street working largely from home now, will companies reduce their presence in the city for good? A new study suggests yes. We'll talk about the fallout for the Big Apple. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. 
To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on markets. And it's a mirror image of what we saw yesterday. The Dow is leading the way today with a nearly 300-point gain. We're just off the session highs. That's a 1% increase. IBM, among the reasons why that index is outperforming. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq is in the red by half a percent. That one, remember, up nearly 2% yesterday for a while was the only one in the green, giving up some of that today. The S&P is once again kind of cutting it in the middle. It is up half a percent or 16 points, 32.68 today. Here's some of the movers this hour. We're watching shares of Halliburton. They are climbing today after better than expected second quarter results. They also got an upgrade to buy from neutral at Bank of America. The firm increasing its price target to 18 for Halliburton from 14, saying their structural changes should drive some higher free cash flow. Uh, Halliburton shares are up nearly 9% to about 1460. They're still down 40% this year. Then it's Starbucks, which is also climbing today. The coffee giant expanding its partnership with Alibaba to allow Chinese customers to order beverages on Alibaba's Taobao marketplace. It's a map and mobile app. Starbucks shares today are trading up nearly 2% on that news, or just over $76 a share. And Amazon, and then this goes back to the NASDAQ, Amazon's lower today. It delayed its annual Prime Day shopping event, which is usually held around now in mid-July. It has not announced a new date, but it told third-party sellers it will likely have have one in October. Shares of Amazon down about 2%, still not giving up their 6% increase yesterday. Now let's get over to Sue Herrera for CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Justice Department is accusing two Chinese nationals who were allegedly working on behalf of the Chinese government of conducting a global hacking campaign for more than a decade. The government says the two targeted high-tech manufacturing processes like solar energy and engineering, but also pharmaceutical research, including companies developing COVID-19 vaccines. TikTok plans to hire 10,000 more staff in the U.S. over the next three years, despite rising tensions between China and the U.S. over privacy and espionage concerns. More than 280 journalists at the Wall Street Journal sent a letter to the publisher today expressing concerns over what they see as the newspaper's opinion section's shortcoming in terms of fact-checking and accuracy. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has landed in London and is set for high-level meetings with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Hong Kong democracy activist Nathan Law following increasing security measures in China. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. I'll see you again in an hour. All right, Sue. Thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Coca-Cola zombie brands, the West Coast grocer you maybe should add to your cart, and say goodbye to Wall Street. All that and more is on today's edition of Rapid Fire. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Kane Rogers, Mike Santoli, and Seema Modi. Welcome, everybody. And we're going to start with Coca-Cola. Out with results this morning. Earnings per share beat slightly, but they reported a 28% drop in sales and the largest decline in quarterly revenue in at least 25 years. They see improving demand lately, but CEO James Quincy says Coke is reviewing its portfolio for zombie brands. CNBC's own Sarah Eisen is with us now because, I mean, if we're talking Coke, we got to talk with Sarah, Sarah, uh, Sarah, comma, Sarah. What, what, which, what are the zombie brands? What are they getting rid of? So this has been actually a long strategy by James Quincy, but the crisis has really sped it up. One example would be Adwala, the juice brand that, mm. that Coke bought back in 2001, just sales that are not performing well financially. He, he, I asked James Quincy, the CEO, about this earlier today. He didn't really give any specifics in terms of naming names, and, and I'm told by the company that it is still very much an ongoing problem, uh, an ongoing process, looking for the brands, many of them regional, Kelly, that are just not performing well. They have to focus on the core brands as the company tries to grow market share again as countries around the world reopen. And that's yeah. really the story for Coke this quarter, and that is half of its business comes from away from home, restaurants, bars, stadiums, movie theaters, and that was tough. This past quarter, Quincy painted an optimistic picture saying that it's it's getting better and that second quarter, he says, really marked the worst of it. And that's why the stock is up, because the expectations were already so low going in. True. And I'm curious, Sarah, what this says for the, you know, where's the snacks? Show us the Fritos. Show us the, you know, the Lay's potato chips is that, you know, there we're showing the Pepsi versus Coke stock chart. It's only I mean, it's a gap. It's a 15 percentage point. It's not, you know, epic, but it's there. And, and that's actually one of the biggest gaps we've seen in history wow. for the spread between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And, and it's two things. Pepsi has less exposure to the away from home, which in the industry is confusingly called on-premise business. <laughs> and it also has snacks. And that certainly cushions the blow here because people are buying snacks at home. Quaker Oats, for instance, is under Pepsi's umbrella, grew more than 20 percent Last quarter, people are eating breakfast at home. So you're going to get a lot more growth out of the food business when you're staying at home than, say, the orange juice business, with Quincy said, is showing some strength as people eat breakfast. But obviously, food is yeah. much stronger in terms of the stock up, eat at home trend. In fact, on that grocery business, Quincy said that the initial stock up you saw during the onset of the pandemic, it's really worn off and gone back to normal as consumers, he said, realize that there's not going to be any major supply chain impacts and that companies like his and others were able to keep the food on right. the, the beverages. Thank God. The and they should be given a tremendous amount of credit for keeping those uh, shelves full. Seema, you'll be proud of me. We have been eating so much oatmeal. I'm going through like a canister every couple of days. It's very healthy. I mean, even if you add Nutella, it's pretty healthy. And it looks like, as Sarah says, Pepsi kind of hit the sweet spot in having that Quaker brand, but also having snacks exposure as well. And I wonder, Sarah, if Coca-Cola's uh, purchase of Costa Coffee kind of came at an unfortunate time, which, of course, just increases Coca-Cola's exposure to that retail footprint, which right now, if you're a retailer or a consumer package company, you really don't want to have. No question about it, Seema. The restaurant business, the cafe business is tough. There were questions about that 
Costa acquisition even back way before the pandemic and whether Coke even wanted to get into the restaurant business. Clearly now it's not a good time, but I would say it's a, it's a small percentage of Coke's overall business. Uh, the, when, I, when we talk about the away from home business, it's really the, the McDonald's of the world and, and, you know, the sporting events and the, the movie theaters I mentioned, the, 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 the concerts, that's really what's hurting because that's where people buy a lot of soda and a lot of uh, beverages, including water, which yeah. continues to be hit. They're still seeing some strong trends, guys, in, in terms of what, what had been working. Coke Zero Sugar, for instance, still, still up year to date. Topo Chico still doing well, but, but relatively speaking, everything's down because we're just not going out. Yeah, I remember that Adwala. I remember drinking that a few times 10 years ago, probably like everybody else, and then you just move on. Sarah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see you in a little bit. Sarah Eisen with the Coke update. Kind of let's stay on theme. Talk about Albertsons, where two of the street's biggest firms are now saying people should add the grocery chain to their carts. J.P. Morgan initiating Albertsons with an overweight today, saying it's not your father's. Goldman Sachs initiating with a buy, both noting the stock, which went public last month, is trading at a deep discount to its grocery peers, guys. But it faces tough competition. Discount chain Aldi is planning to open 70 more U.S. stores this year. Kate, it wants to become the nation's third largest grocer by 2022. Yeah, Kelly, I think just anecdotally in my own circle, I'm hearing more and more consumers being more price conscious about the grocers that they're going to, because let's face it, we are, as Sarah just mentioned in this Coke segment, we're not going out as much, right? People are cooking more at home. So I think it's going to come down to who's got the better and lower prices. I've also heard Lidl come up. Mm. Uh, that's a lower discount chain as well. Uh, but again, people aren't going to bars and restaurants. We even heard this come up on Domino's earnings call. They said that people are ordering more food, placing bigger orders to have left Again, everyone's <laughs> staying home, thinking more about price. So it makes sense, you know, that you see an Albertsons uh, be a recommendation here just because they are a lower price point grocer. But again, Walmart has a huge footprint. So how do you take on uh, from from a consumer price standpoint such a giant like that that does offer these deeper discounts? Yeah. And Mike, I don't know if they spoke to kind of the legacy balance sheet issues that Albertsons had. I mean, it's it's gone public. It's gone private again. I mean, that's why it was a lackluster IPO, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Well, it was a private. It was an LBO and it was in private hands for a number of years longer than the backers of the LBO preferred. And so you have an IPO here that was pushed out because the market was willing to accommodate it uh, because of the needs of the private equity firms, not because the company itself reached some kind of growth threshold or had some uh, really great new innovative story to tell. So I do think it's a slow growth uh, grocer right now. In fact, some of the defensiveness was evident in the in the recommendations of the stock and the initiations today, which was kind of, yeah, we know uh, we've already <laughs> just seen the big pop in grocery uh, and maybe it's not a compelling valuation story, but it's a it's a consumer staple of sorts and can probably perform in that way. And what's interesting, too, by the way, we talk about being cheaper than its peers. There's really only one peer, Pure Play, which is Kroger. Huh. Uh, so it's interesting now that at least you have two of these big supermarket companies. Yeah, and they're not that comparable. Seema, if you had to place your bets on Albertsons or Aldi's, where'd you put your money? Well, perhaps unknown. Um well, between the two, Albertsons and Aldi, because of my time in London, I wonder if you feel similarly, Kelly. I became a big fan of Aldi. Great price point. And their liquor, oh, my God, so cheap, by the way, <laughs> FYI, for those who live by an, an Aldi. So hard to say who will win. But what I found interesting is that Alberts, uh, Albertsons' uh, investment in technology seems to be paying off. E-commerce sales for that company in April up 374 percent compared to the same period last year. Who would have thought? I know. I, I was looking at the Acme, but my neighbor said just maybe, you know, you can get some of the 
the shrimp and the seafood there. Maybe not the chicken. Anyway, uh, that's that's just in our neighborhood. Uh, speaking of at-home stocks, Foot Locker is getting a leg up from Deutsche Bank today. Uh, it's up nearly 9% as the firm says it should continue to benefit from the pandemic because people are wearing more sweatpants and casual clothes. They're working out at home and they're using extra money, including stimulus checks, to buy sneakers instead of taking trips this year. Guys, Kate, what do you think? I mean, I thought that that was definitely interesting that people are looking to spend their stimulus money on something, right? Because a lot of people are pulling back or potentially getting priced out of summer travel, as we've talked about uh, in recent weeks. They also noted that the NBA restarting could be good for Foot Locker. But what about uh, a supplier like Nike, which obviously is sold at Foot Locker but has its own direct-to-consumer line? I mean, uh, you know, it's a small price target hike here to $32, but... I just don't know that people are necessarily going to be wanting to spend at Foot Locker in the way that they would be uh, in a normal summer season heading into back to school. That's also changing this year. Hmm. I don't know, Kelly. I am definitely uh, wearing a lot of sweats at home. I will I will leave it there. <laughs> we won't ask uh, for a reveal. <laughs> uh, but, Seema, I will say that the Nike store that I watched, my little, my little barometer, I mean, only today when the temps hit about 100 degrees was that line any shorter than it has been since the reopening. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of people out there every day. And I... I guess as part of my question is when you can just buy at Nike, you know, are you going into a mall to shop at Foot Locker? Like, I guess you go to .com. And there's a lot of options. That's why this Wall Street call on Foot Locker was hard to digest. Yes, maybe more people are wearing athleisure, but are they going into a mall to shop at a Foot Locker? Maybe for shoes, it's one of those items where you want to try it on versus buy online. But then to Kate's point, then you just go on Nike where it has that direct-to-consumer model that has worked so well. Remember, they also terminated their partnership with Amazon just about six months ago because mm -hmm. DTC worked so well for Nike. That's right. Forgot about that. All right, let's talk before we go about the great shriek Wall Street. According to a study commissioned by the Partnership for New York City, companies are considering reducing their presence in New York City by at least 20 percent. This one reason the city's economy could shrink by as much as 13 percent this year. And it's not just downtown Manhattan that's struggling. The iconic U.S. bank tower in downtown Los Angeles, Mike, was just sold off at a super deep discount. What's the future for Wall Street? Big question about not just the future for Wall Street, but about, you know, dense urban uh, office cores. Uh, clearly going to be challenged right now for Wall Street. What's interesting is this is not as if we were at peak Wall Street employment in New York City, and now we're going to come off that peak. Uh, the employment level in New York uh, among the financial services firms is still well below its 2,000 peak. So wow. after 9-11, we saw a round of this after the, uh, the tech bubble and then after the Great Recession. So it's been kind of a, a longer-term winnowing of the employee base. Uh, and also, by the way, the average bonus on Wall Street, New York State tracks this, is down from the year 2000. I mean, not even adjusting for inflation. So all those things tell you that this is more of a continuation and acceleration of a trend. But it is definitely worth asking uh, just what this whole work from home, you know, apparent success yeah. uh, on trading desks has, has meant for the future. Mike, what do you glean about, you know, we talk about Wall Street and the bonus question definitely applies to a certain segment of those firms. But what about financial firms more broadly, the kinds that have sprung up all over Midtown lately? I mean, there's still a huge community there. Are, yeah. Do you think these are companies that are now looking at either the suburbs or like look what Alliance Bernstein did. They're moving to Nashville, moving yeah. to lower cost areas. I think that the larger firms are looking to accentuate outside of, of, of the urban uh, centers to, to grow. Goldman Sachs is a massive center in Salt Lake City. 
Um, that's been the case for years right now. So I think the big firms are doing that. Smaller firms, uh, I don't know if the clustering effect of startups is still going to uh, necessarily apply from here. There is a kind of a fintech alley uh, in New York, so maybe that can, can continue to thrive. But it's very much unclear what the, the real overall headcount would be. I also recall in 2001, after 9-11, Morgan Stanley had bought a campus in, in, in Westchester in the suburbs, and they have still a, a, a big uh, you know, headcount base there as well. Yeah, I know the burbs are excited about the potential. It's all we hear about. Thank you all. We appreciate it. And I'll be going to Aldi the first chance I get to see if Seema's right. Kate Rogers, Mike Santoli, and Seema Modi. Still ahead, the pandemic may permanently change the mall experience as more retailers declare bankruptcy. We're going to talk to the owner of malls across the country, including COVID hotspot Florida, about whether owners like him should be bailing out the big-name stores. That's next. As we had to break, take a look at some of the names hitting fresh intraday highs today. Home Depot, Costco, Lowe's, Monster Beverage, Progressive. Flo must love it. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. We have a news alert on Tapestry. Over to Leslie Picker. What's going on, Leslie? Hey, Kelly, we received a statement from the now former CEO of Tapestry. Tapestry announcing this morning the abrupt resignation of Gide Zeitlin, citing personal reasons. Shortly thereafter, headlines surfaced about accusation, accusations made uh, by one woman about his conduct. Now, CNBC.com's Lauren Thomas received a comment from Zeitlin who says, quote, In the past month, a woman I photographed and had a relationship with more than 10 years ago reached out to various media organizations to express her concern concerns about what had occurred. He goes on to say, quote, I felt compelled to resign today because I do not want to create a distraction for Tapestry, a company I care deeply about. A source told CNBC Tapestry had hired a law firm to investigate allegations made by a woman that Zeitlin had pretended uh, to be a photographer to lure her into a romantic relationship. Tapestry, which owns brands like Kate Spade and Coach, gained in today's trading. Kelly. Well, that's quite a story. Leslie, thank you. Meanwhile, COVID cases are continuing to spike across the South and West. Tighter restrictions are, fording, are forcing some businesses to close down again. And Florida is one of those areas where our next guest operates luxury malls. Sticking with retail, what is the path forward for retail? Let's check back in with Nathan Forbes. He is president and managing general partner of the Forbes company. Nate, it's good to have you back. What's going on in Florida? How, how is business? Well, business has been pretty good. We actually operate three centers in the state of Florida. We're 94% open. Traffic's been off probably about 30 to 40%, but sales have only been off about 20% year to date over last year during the same period. With a lot of the luxury brands, athleisure business, athletic footwear business have been up double digits compared to last year. So it's been a broad spectrum, definitely. Florida, as the increase in cases have occurred, we've had a sporadic shutdown of a few retailers over the course of time that have reopened. But uh, Florida's come back uh, fairly well. What's drawing people to the mall? You know what? I think there's a pent-up demand for consumers. I think a lot of stimulus money. I think pent-up demand. I mean, they were really shut out of regional malls for many months, as you know. There's an e-commerce platform that works hand-in-hand with brick-and-mortar. And then how you get those goods and services seamlessly to the consumer is going to be really the future of our business. You have to almost become agnostic as to how you sell your goods and services if you're a retailer through both the e-commerce platform, the delivery platform, and the brick-and-mortar platform. 
I'm curious what you make of the mall owners who are looking to buy or, or partner with some of the bankrupt retailers in order to keep them going, kind of a, a win-win if it goes well and they can ride out the pandemic for a couple of years. Is that something you would ever consider taking part in? Yeah, I don't know that it fits our platform real well, but for a company like Simon and Brookfield, it's 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 very, very ingenious strategy, actually. If they can buy these retailers at the right price, be able to reinvent the retailers, reduce their store base, uh, keep good occupancy in the shopping centers. In the case of the Simon organization, when you have 250 malls, both off price and full price, you got to maintain occupancy. You got to have a good cross section of best in class retail in all categories. And it's something that, uh, you know, when you have eight and a half billion dollars access on your balance sheet, it's something that's worth absolutely taking a look at and could be a great future vertical of business for them. So final question for you, what has vacancy been like at your malls? Vacancy has is, is really not been the issue. The issue is trying to, you know, we're, we're in negotiation with 500 retailers. We're making sure that these retailers, A, get open. And as I mentioned, we're 94% open across the platform. We're negotiating uh, uh, for a period of, of, of rent uh, discussions with retailers that we're making great progress on. And it's really a two-way relationship between the retailers and the developers. And when we come out of this pandemic and get into the new normal, we want to be at a great starting point with our retailers, with our consumers, a great place to shop, with compelling offerings to all across all price points for our guests. Well, we appreciate the update. It's amazing. Just like you said, the conversion rates are increasing uh, as well. Maybe there is some pent up demand, even with the, the pandemic doing what it's doing. Nate, thanks so much. We'll check back in with you soon, hopefully. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nathan Forbes of the Forbes Company. Still ahead, according to Jeffrey's David Zervos, the Fed got the go early idea on stimulus exactly right. But there's still a lot more work to do. He'll tell us why they need now to go bigger or face dire consequences. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Different pattern in markets today. The Nasdaq selling off all the other uh, major averages gain. But look, its comeback is almost complete. We're only down 10 points for the Nasdaq composite. This despite Amazon selling off after delaying its prime day this year, giving back about 2% of its big gains from yesterday. Dow's up 288. We're near session highs. S&P's up two-thirds of 1%. And since mid-March, the Fed has slashed interest rates, announced $2.3 trillion in lending to support businesses and financial markets in the fight to staunch the fallout from COVID. But it may not have been enough. My next guest says they got the go-early idea right, but not the go-big part. Joining me now to explain is David Servos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. It's great to have you back, Dave. What is your main concern that they... Would you like to see them announce much bigger programs or just to make sure that they don't shrink what they've already announced? Well, I think both, to be honest with you, Kelly. I think, you know, last week we had uh, uh, the president of the Dallas Fed, Rob Kaplan, talk about um, kind of pulling back a little bit. The market got a little nervous on that. And then uh, Governor Leo Brainerd, I think, came out with a fantastic speech on why any sort of premature withdrawal uh, was, was really unwarranted at this time and certainly uh, left the door open, I think, even for action at this upcoming meeting at the end of the month. So, I think you've got a, a pretty interesting, uh, you've actually got a pretty interesting meeting this time. I think there could be quite a lot of debate internally on, on what's next. And a lot of that is just all the things you're talking about on this show, about the uncertainty, where we're headed, what we're doing. And the fact is, 
Kelly, you know, we've got an, an inflation rate that's as low as it's been, core PCE, at any time during the global financial crisis or within 10 base points of that, and an unemployment rate that's higher hmm. than any time during the global financial crisis. So what are we doing talking about withdrawals? Uh, we should be talking about, you know, what we're going to do next if things persist like this. And I, I'd like that to be, to be the debate more than talking about withdrawal. That so here's my question. If we summary. go back to kind of the policy thrust here, we know that monetary policy takes a while, but that the stock market prices it in more quickly. So is the market telling us that what they've done is enough? You know, if we're basically back to all-time highs, are they saying that core PCE is going to go up, the unemployment rate is going to come down? It's just that we have to wait a little while. You know, I think the, the stock market can can disconnect for quite some time from from the real economy. And as you said, it does it does lead all the time. And we are, you know, we are stimulating in that investment grade corporate area. I think that's where the Fed targeted a lot of the stimulus. And every one of the S and P five hundred companies is basically an investment grade company. They're buying the debt of those investment grade companies. So what we have to really wait for is the Fed to kind of figure out how to get the Main Street facility working, how to fix some of the other parts of the economy that are not uh, as, as tied into Fed policy, financials, and investment-grade corporates. And I think that could take some time. So the mandate is really not about the stock market. It's about, uh, it's about inflation and unemployment. And right now, we have really high unemployment, and we have really low inflation. Yeah, so it, I think you've got to kind of put that stock market story aside as much as everybody likes to talk about bubbles and just say, hey, that's that's the goal. Let's get that goal done. Right. And stocks will do what they're going to do. And many people who look at the balance sheet going to 33 percent, the size of the economy, think that's you know, just way too uncomfortably high. But you're saying, no, it might not nearly be enough. Can the Main Street po- program achieve that? I mean, there's this op-ed in the journal today, Glenn Hubbard, Hal Scott, or they're saying, look, it's too stingy to banks. It's too stingy to borrowers. There's not a lot of demand. There's not going to be a lot of uptake. Could the Main Street program be one way for the Fed to do what you want it to do, or do they need to do something different? I think it's really tricky for them. Uh, it's not their usual operating area. They're probably going to get this. Uh, they're going to have to tweak it. They're going to get it a little wrong at first. And you don't, you don't, you don't want to beat them up too much for that because it's a new thing. But I think they're trying, and that's the key. Is they're trying to not do what they did during the global financial crisis, which is effectively stimulate Wall Street, kind of leave Main Street behind, and have an economy that really lagged in terms of, of, of growth. Uh, while the financial side of the economy recovered quite quickly, so I think that's 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 the that's the story. That's the hope. Uh, that's my hope. But yeah. at the moment, I, I think you've got to got to kind of push back a little bit on this idea that you know we're just sitting here blowing bubbles all the time. We have a real we have a, we have a, a you know humanitarian crisis on our hands with the virus. Yeah. We have all of these deaths that we're we're, we're seeing. You know, we're seeing thankfully go down, but the case is going up. This is. It just strikes me as a very odd time yeah. to be talking about withdrawals of monetary policy stimulus, especially in a world where this inflation rate, which has been under target for yeah. eight yeah. years, is even more under target than it was before. It's no, just, you're, you're just, absolutely right. I don't mean to hurry you along. We'll have you back, David. We really appreciate it. And like you said, we're not just sitting here blowing bubbles all the time. David Zervos from Jeffries. We'll see you on Power Lunch on the other side of this break. Tillman Tuesdays coming up. Don't miss it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.